Well, as we turn in our Bible today to Nehemiah chapter 3, it's the kind of passage that many people skip over because it's a, a chapter that's filled with a long list of hard-to-pronounce names. Now, reading this chapter is kind of like sitting through a high school graduation. You know, you hear name after name of people you don't know just waiting for that one you know so you can cheer. And in this chapter, we're going to find there's a list of 38 individual names, and there's a list of 42 different groups. And since these people lived so long ago, we might wonder, well, what is there for us to get excited about? Do we even really know who any of these people are? I'll tell you why a chapter like this should excite us. A chapter where God lists all of these names should excite us because it shows that God loves to list names. He knows individuals. He knows each of us by name. And as we read this, we're going to see that what God is doing is he could have just said, hey, the work on the wall was done. He could have just said Nehemiah was the the head guy. He could have listed just a few key leaders. But what he did instead was pick not only leaders but individuals, people who worked on the walls so that we would know the names of some of these people. And so what it does is it shows us not only does God know who we are, but it also shows that he knows what we do. And I know there are times that some of us serve in a place where we may be in a backroom Bible study, we may be doing diaper duty in a nursery, we may be thinking nobody sees me uh, folding or stuffing the bulletins or the children's uh, resource box, and does, does it really matter? Because nobody knows what I'm doing. But what the Bible tells us is God knows what you're doing. God sees your work, and he will reward you for your work. The Bible tells us that in the New Testament. In Hebrews 10:6, we're told, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work, and the love which you have shown for his name, in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. So I invite you to look with me now as we look at the work that was done in Nehemiah chapter 3, as we begin by reading verses 1 through 4. It says, And Eliashabab the high priest arose with his brothers, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Now the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. And they laid its beam and they hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. And next to him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshizabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Bana, also made repairs. Now, as we talk about these walls and these gates, you may be picturing in your mind something like you've seen around town if you've driven by a gated community. Uh, But the the walls and the gates being talked about here are, are much different. This is a picture of the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah did not build this gate. This was built about the 16th century. But I want you to get an idea of the scope when we read about a city gate. This was a large fortified structure. It was an entryway into the city. And the Damascus Gate is located in the the area where the fish gate mentioned in verse 3 is. It's called the fish gate because that's where the merchants would bring the fish into the city in order to sell in the marketplace. Uh, Here's a a map showing kind of the the tour that we're being taken on around the city. And you see the Sheep Gate is in red there at the top. That's at the northeast corner of the city. And then there's this later expansion of the wall on the left side of the slide. Nehemiah's city was smaller at the time, and Jerusalem has continued to expand and be built out. 
But we start up there in the northeast at the Sheep Gate, which is located right by the Temple Mount. It's so named because this is where the sacrificial sheep and animals would be brought into the Temple Mount uh, in order to be sacrificed. And so we might be starting up there to show the first fruits belong to the things that were dedicated to God. Now, the Dung Gate is all the way down on the bottom of the slide there, you see. And it's so named because this was the trash uh, area of the city. The, the human waste and the trash of the city were taken out through the dung or the refuse gate. And it was taken to the Hinnom Valley where it would be burned uh, down in this area. You can still walk through this gate today. This is the, the dung gate in Jerusalem uh, down there on the southern part of the city. And um, when, when we read here about the, the towers that were built, they were up there around the Temple Mount. This slide is not of the actual towers Nehemiah built, but this is one of the original towers of the city. Back in 70 AD, when the Romans leveled Jerusalem, uh, they left this tower intact because the Romans liked to brag, and they wanted everybody to see what a, a great city this was that they had conquered. So this is one of the original tower fortifications of, of the walls uh, that was left behind. Now, when we're reading about Nehemiah's wall, this is a picture of the actual broad wall that Nehemiah built. Uh, as the city expanded, they covered over this area. And later, as Jerusalem was being built up uh, and they were excavating to do construction, they uncovered this wall. And this is the actual broad wall that we're reading about that was built. Now, you don't get much of an idea from the slide of the scale, but this wall is 22 feet thick and over 25 feet high. And uh, so it was a massive wall. It was probably even higher than what we see in the picture, but the stones would have been taken down and used in construction in other areas. And so what you see is that this was maybe not as pretty as some of the modern walls, but it was a very substantial wall and would have given the city the security that, that was needed. Now, to do such a large project took a lot of manpower. And our passage gives us the names of some of the workers in the groups and you can also read Ezra chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 7 to see a fuller description of some of those. And you'll find that behind some of the names we're looking at, they, they were groups of more than a 1,000 workers. So there are literally tens of thousands of people that are working on rebuilding two and a half miles of walls and ten city gates is what we're reading about in the book of Nehemiah. And so how was such a large job like this done? Well, it's the same way you eat an elephant, one bite at a time, right? You can look at an elephant and be overwhelmed by its size, but you, you have to take the first bite and then the next and the next. And part of what we've been looking at in this series, we've talked about all of the lessons in leadership we can learn, and we see how Nehemiah managed this massive project. And what he did was he, he broke down the project into sections of the wall and, and, and individual gates, and he said, this needs to be done by this group of people. And so he has this bite-sized project. And if you're looking at some project in your life, uh, at work or school, or just even trying to deal with an area of your own life that may seem overwhelming, we can take a cue from what Nehemiah did and, and break it down into bite-sized portions. And the first bite Nehemiah took, you'll remember in the first two chapters we saw, was to pray. Nehemiah has gone before the Lord praying and fasting, Numerous times we've read about prayer already in this series, and so that was the first bite he took. And by doing so, 
It, it not only was the power source of the whole project, that's how it was accomplished, but it also gave Nehemiah the perspective he needed because rather than being overwhelmed by the task, he was able to compare it to the size of God and it shrunk the project down to its proper perspective. So having asked God for help, Nehemiah then looks to see who God has given him to help. And here's another lesson we can learn, because with tens of thousands of workers, how would you organize this? What would the org chart look like? Well, one of the things Nehemiah does is he doesn't reinvent the wheel. He looks at the people, he looks at the groups, and he says, where are there already natural affinities? Who's associating with who? Who's, Who's geographically located? Who are the leaders that are already in place? And so he breaks out the the project by sections and he assigns groups in those areas. Now, as we're going to see when we get to verse 5, there was one group of leaders who were unwilling to be involved in the projects and Nehemiah would have had to step into that area and and help with the organization. There's a a leadership uh, expert named Jim Collins. And he says a, a good leader gets the right people on the bus. The right people on the bus. He gets the wrong people off the bus. And then he gets the people in the right seats on the bus. And what we find is Nehemiah is doing that here. He's going to get some people off the bus. He's going to get others on, and he's going to make sure that each one is in their proper area. And in verse 1, the first group that we see mentioned are the priests. And they're working on the sheep gate. And you'll remember I told you this was by the temple. And so Nehemiah wisely says this is a place that they're already geographically located as well as having a connection. Rather than waste time and energy traveling to another part of the city by sending the priest from the temple down over here or these folks from there over there, he says, you're right there. This is where you're going to work. And they had this connection because this was where the sacrifices came into the city. So they had a vested interest in seeing that gate functional and rebuilt so that they could um, focus on the rest of their their job. Later in the chapter, we're going to see Nehemiah does the same thing in verse 10. There it says, uh, Jedidiah, the son of Harumph, made repairs opposite his house, right by his house. And that's repeated throughout this chapter in verse 21, 23, 28, 29, and 30. Other workers are placed similarly in proximity to where they live. As I said, it not only saves time, but there's immediate buy-in to the project. Because if you were in a city uh, and it was being attacked, where the enemy would attack First is where there was no fortification. If there was a hole in the wall, they're coming through your backyard. If your part of the wall was weak and flimsy, they would have come through that area as well. So you wanted the wall right by your house to be built quickly and to be constructed well. And so Nehemiah takes this natural buy-in and he, he puts the people to work in places where they have a vested interest. Now, when you're in the right place, you'll find that there's not only built-in motivation, but there's an accompanied joy that goes with the work that you do. So as you think about your own life, the places that you serve, the places that you work, the program you're pursuing maybe in school, uh, ask yourself, are you in a place where you're really passionate? Is it something you enjoy doing? Now, as we're talking about serving God, it's, it's not just limited to what you may do here at Wayside. Uh, we see these people are serving all throughout uh, the city. Remember, the priests were those who worked in the temple. And, and we read here uh, that the priest is somebody, if you look at verse 1, you see the priests consecrated or sanctified their work. 
This, this word literally means to dedicate or set apart something as holy to God. As you read the Old Testament, you'll see when the high priest was appointed, there was this huge uh, set of sacrifices and ceremony that went to consecrate his hands as being holy and set apart to do God's work. And here we see that the priest sees the work on the wall as just as holy, just as much what God does as the actual sacrifices he's offering in the temple. Uh, He understood that hauling away rubble and rebuilding the wall could be just as much a ministry as what he did in the temple. So if you're somebody who who separates the sacred from the secular, if you say, well, what I do Sunday morning or Wednesday night or Thursday in Awana or wherever your place of ministry is with BSF on a Monday night or, or some other study you do at work or school, and you say, well, that's for God and the rest of this stuff is what I do, Uh, You need to change your your mindset because God does not separate the sacred from the secular. He says that everything we do should be a ministry. Everything we do, we should see as being connected to to who God is and and what he calls us to do. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, we're told, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In 1 Peter 4.11, we're told, whoever speaks... Let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory, dominion, forever and ever. Amen. Whatever we do with our time, our talent, our resources, should be ministries that we see as devoted to God. So as you think about what you're doing, if you realize that when you're at work, it's just as much an offering to God as what you might put in an offering plate on a Sunday morning. It'll change your mindset. You, you won't feel uh, this, this need, you know, to, to wrestle with, is it okay to cut corners or to compromise my integrity? Because you would never do that uh, for something devoted to God. And so as you realize what I'm doing is for God, then it'll change the way that you go about work and it'll change the way people view you because they'll say, why are you doing that that menial task with such excellence or with such joy? Uh, When I was in college, one of the jobs I had was uh, doing custodial work in a building and I would scrub the potties until they, they shined, you know, and people say, why don't you just hose it off? It was a construction office, and the previous guy literally would just take the fire hose and wash down the the showers that way. And I said, well, I'm scrubbing potties for the glory of God. And that summer, I led two people to the Lord because they're like, what are you doing? And so ask yourself if the work you're doing is pointing people to Jesus. Do people look at you and say, why are you different? When you go through and you read about the workers here, you'll see that some stood out from the crowd because of how they served. Uh, We already talked about the built-in motivation of building the wall where your home was. But you'll notice that in this chapter, there are some who didn't live in the city. As you look at verse 2, it says the men of Jericho were there. This was a town outside of Jerusalem. And then in verse 7, it says the men of Mitzvah and Gibeah are there. Again, people who lived outside of the city. Those are people who left their homes to travel into Jerusalem. They left their own homes unprotected. They left their own personal projects undone to come into the city, to do the work on the walls, seeing it as a ministry for God. They made sacrifices. And, and 
this is, this is something that I know many of you do as well. You sacrifice here at Wayside or in other places of ministry. You give of your time, your resources. Some of the things you could do personally go undone because you say, I realize that this is a work of God that I want to be invested in. So thank you. Thank you for what you do. It's what we see happening here in Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, as Nehemiah tells us about these many faithful men and women doing the work, we also see some were unwilling to get involved because in verse 5, it says, Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Now, Tekoa was a small town that was located 10 miles south of Jerusalem. If you've ever read about Amos the prophet, this was his hometown. He was from Tekoa. And, and here what we see is the people of Tekoa are faithful. They leave their homes. They leave the things. They come to serve. But their nobles said, we're too important for work like that. We don't get our hands dirty. We don't do menial or manual labor. So uh, there's a problem of pride stood in the way of the leaders. Now, not all the leaders had that mindset. Remember, Nehemiah is out there leading the project and working on the walls. We'll see personally as we continue through this series. He was the governor of Judah. And so he's out there working on the walls. We've seen where the high priest leaves the temple and the ministry there to minister by doing the work on the walls. If you're somebody who, who struggles with doing things that you think are beneath you, that you're too important to take out the trash or set up tables or serve in a way that maybe it doesn't get the spotlight, I want you to remember the example of Jesus Christ. I want you to remember the things that Jesus taught us. All throughout the New Testament, we see as Jesus was, was walking among the people, this was God in the flesh. God took on flesh and blood. He was among the disciples who were always fighting about who was the greatest. And there's the, the one instance in, in John's gospel where at the Last Supper, they were fighting about who was the greatest, and none of them would get up to wash the feet of everybody. Remember, they're reclining around the table. And nobody had washed the, the dirt and the grime off everybody's feet. And it was face level as you were laying out eating at this table. And we're told Jesus got up. He takes off his robe. He wraps a towel around himself. He grabs a basin and he goes and he washes the feet of each of the disciples. And when he was done, in John thirteen fourteen, Jesus said, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, if you're still uh, struggling with this basin towel theology of serving, um, I love this poem by a man named Saxon Kissinger. He wrote a poem called The Indispensable Man. And in it, he says, sometimes when you're feeling important, sometimes when your ego's way up, sometimes when you take it for granted that you're the prize-winning pup, Sometimes when you feel that your absence would leave an unfillable hole, just follow these simple steps and see how it humbles your soul. Take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in it up to your wrist. Now pull it out fast, and the hole that remains is the measure of how you'll be missed. <laughs> he says you may splash about all you please as you enter in, stir up the water galore, but stop, and you'll find in a minute it's back where it was before. You know, the men of Tekoa went to do the work. Their leaders, their nobles said, we're not going. And as we read through this chapter, what we find is the men of Tekoa 
completed their project. Even without their leaders in place, they were able to do the work. In fact, what we're told about the men of Tekoa, if you look at verse 27, is they went on to finish a second section of the wall. There are only three individuals or groups mentioned in this chapter that did more than one section of the wall. The men of Tekoa, Barak, and Maramoth. They are the only ones who did more than one section. Not only were these men of Tekoa different, where they said, we are going to uh, serve regardless of the task versus their, their noblemen, but they also said, we're not going to stop when our assigned job is done. We're going to look around and say, is there something else still to be done? And they jumped in and they took on a second whole section of the wall that they then completed. Not only were these men different in, in terms of, of what they did, saying we're going to do our fair share, but they kept working. Do you know anybody like that? Think about the people you know where you work or where you serve. There are those individuals that, that don't just do what they have to, but they go above and beyond. And think about how everybody views them. You may be one of those people. And in terms of, of who they are, again, as I think about Wayside, I love reading a chapter like Nehemiah chapter 3 because I see a living example as I think about the people who, who serve here and the ministries that take place. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of faithful volunteers that make the ministry happen on Sunday and all throughout the week. It could not be done without the people who serve outside of the staff that is here. Now, we're not only blessed by people like the men of Tekoa, but we're also blessed by those who are like uh, Baruch. As you look at verse 20, it says there that he zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Elishabab, the high priest. Now, as, as he went out to work on the second section of the wall, it says he went about his work zealously. The, the root of this word, the Hebrew word, literally means to glow or burn to glow or burn. It wasn't that he was in the hot sun just sweating and he had sunburn. It was the way that he went about his work. This is a guy who had a smile on his face. This is a guy who had passion for what he was doing. And as everybody watched him working, it motivated them. They said, man, I want to be like this guy. Look at the joy he has. Look at the zealousness, the way he's pursuing the work. And it helped to spur other people on. As you think about this list we're looking at today, who in this passage describes you? Who in this passage would you say you're like? Are you like the people of Tekoa? Are you somebody who says, I want to do what I can and then some? Are you like our, our buddy Baruch, where you do your work zealously with a smile on your face and a spring in your step, where people look at you and say, you've got great joy. I wish I had what you had. Are you more like the leaders of Tekoa who did none of the work? Who sit back and say, you know, somebody else can do it. That's beneath me or that's not my job or, you know, somebody else has to do the work. So we look at verse 14, we find the name of another leader who stands in stark contrast to these nobles of Tekoa. It says now... Uh, Malachi, the, the son of Rechab, the official of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and he hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Now remember this refuse or dung gate, as some translations have it, is, is where the waste, the human waste of the city and the trash of the city was carried out. It, it was taken to this Hinnom Valley where there were these smoldering, smoking fires that they would put this stuff and burn 
uh, all of this. And you can imagine uh, the smell of, of what was coming out of the valley there. And if the wind was blowing toward the city and you were working down on that end of the wall and that gate, you would be covered over in this stinky, smelly haze uh, that was happening. And the root of this guy's name is Melech, which means king. And we're told that he's a high district official. This is another leader. This is a guy who's high up in the echelon of, of society. And if you look at verse 11, you see there's a second man who has the same name, but he has a different father. So this is a different uh, guy. And if you read the book of Ezra, there you'll find that he uh, had a time of failure and he fell. But he turned back to God and he was restored. And so you have these two men who share a name. And as we look at verse 11, the second one is assigned to work at the Tower of Furnaces. Now, the Tower of Furnaces is where the bread of the city was baked. It's where the bread was made. Now, my wife and I, when we lived in Dallas, uh, lived by the Mrs. Baird's uh, Bakery. And if you've ever been around a bread factory when they're baking bread, uh, you know it's, it's a nice smell. It's also a great way to gain a lot of weight because you're always wanting to eat uh, the bread that they're making. And, and our guy in verse 14 uh, doesn't come and say, hey, I'm a district official. I'm higher up than this guy. He doesn't come and say, look, that guy had a failure. He's, he's a wretched sinner, and, and, you know, I'm better than him, so I should have a better assignment. If you had to choose between working at the tower of the furnace where the bread was baked or the refuse gate, which one would you choose? Which one would you want? Well, this one guy doesn't come and pull rank and say, I should have the plum assignment. Instead, what he does is he says, I will take that assignment. And he finishes, faithfully finishes the task at that, that place. You know, there are times that God will call us to work where no one else wants to work. There are going to be times that you are asked to do something or you see an opportunity in a place that everybody else turns their nose up at. And says, uh, you know, that's beneath me. I would never do that. Or I don't want to work with that person or that situation. But as Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 34, when we serve even the least, even the least of these, he says, your service has been done unto me. All people are important to God. All places of service are important to God. Imagine for a moment that nobody wanted to build the refuse gate. Nobody wanted to work on the section of the wall down by the dump. Where would the enemy attack when they came to the city? They would have come pouring through the breach where the walls had not been built. And it didn't matter that the rest of the walls were intact because there would have been this weak spot that the whole city would have fallen. And so as you think in terms of the, the work that you do or the place you've been assigned or the ministry that God has given to you, every place is important. Here at church, at school, where you work, where you serve, the place you live, your neighborhood. I want you to think about where God has you all throughout the week. And we've talked about metaphorically how the walls of San Antonio are broken down, how society is crumbling, how our, our city is, is decaying morally and spiritually. And I said, as you think about the places that God has you, think about the gaps in the wall where God has you, where you go to school, where you work, the people around you, 
who are lost, the people who need to know the Lord, the people who need a light shining in the darkness. And ask yourself, are you standing in the gap? Are you working on the wall, so to speak? Are you building up? Are you sharing the good news where God has you? You know, as you look at at this passage, you may be thinking, well, you know, Roger, as you're talking about sharing the gospel, sharing my faith, doing things, I I, I just don't feel equipped for that. You know, you're you're a pastor. You're a professional. You you get to do that for a living. So it's good that you do it, but that's, that's not for me. Well, actually, it is for all of us. Because the Great Commission tells all of us as believers, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, wherever we are. God has given each and every one of us that ministry. You may not be a professional, but you're a person who has the Holy Spirit living within you. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the Bible, the Word of God. You have what you need, your own personal testimony, just to share with somebody how God has changed your life. You know, as we're reading through this passage, have you noticed that nowhere have we read so-and-so was a carpenter, Michael was a mason, uh, John ran a crane, We don't read about any professional builders all throughout this. Everybody who's doing the work here were were people who had other areas of expertise, but they came together and they served. The work on the walls never would have been done if they were waiting for the professionals to do it. And as you think in terms of your own life, you may have a skill set or a profession or you're studying something in school and you're saying, that's just not in my wheelhouse. But God has given us everything that we need in order, in order to serve uh, for him. And as you're serving, uh, I've, I've asked about your own neighborhood and your home. Many of us have non-believers, some living right in our own home, some right next door. And ask yourself, are you serving those individuals? Are you sharing the good news right where you are? All these workers were working in proximity to their home. Are you doing the same? Now, one of the things that that we see here, as I'm talking about thinking of your own family, you should be including your family in the work that you do. Again, one of the things I love about Wayside is when I look at all of the, the moms and the dads who serve with their kids where I see children who are watching and learning from their moms and their dads as they're mentored, as they come alongside. And as we're reading this passage in verse 12, we're told that one of the leaders has his daughters out working on the wall with him. Now, we're not told the the age of these ladies. They could have been little girls. They could have been little kids that were watching their father and learning how to serve the Lord. Or they could have been grown women who were willingly out there alongside their father serving and and, and working on the wall, doing God's work. Whether they're older or younger, there was mentoring that was taking place and there was this joy of sharing in the work together. Now, I know sometimes as parents, you're you're hesitant to have your children help, right? I have three kids of my own. And and I know that sometimes when they help, uh, it kind of multiplies your work, right? Because they make a mess, you have to manage them, you're constantly coming around, you're correcting and showing. But what you'll find is, as you continue to teach and demonstrate and, and work with them, they will grow in their capacity, their abilities. And, and they'll soon be able to multiply the work that you're able to do. And beyond that, you're instilling in them a love and a lifetime of service. Studies, not just religious, but secular studies show that when children 
watch their parents serve, and when they come along and, and are mentored in the process, they are 300 times more likely to serve as adults than those who had nothing modeled for them as they were children. So as you look at those who are around you, can you say you're doing as this dad did in verse 12? Are you serving with your kids? Or if your kids are grown and gone or you don't have children yet, who are the people you're apprenticing? Who are those you work with or, or are around that you're teaching and training and helping to grow? As we look at verses 8 and then again in 31 and 32, there are other people mentioned whom, again, we would not expect to find working on the wall. As you read those, those verses, rather than reading about muscled men wearing hard hats, we're told that there are goldsmiths. And there are perfumers, and there's a pharmacist out doing the work on the wall. These are, these are people who are used to doing delicate, fine, intricate work in a clean workspace. And now they're out there on a wall. They're, they're working and they're serving out there in, in the rubble. The, these are people who, who were willingly uh, serving to do God's work. And as you look at this list of people here in chapter 3 who are working on the wall, again, I love it because it's just like Wayside. As I think about the, the names and the faces, and, and I thought about going through and just mentioning, but we would be here all day if I tried to start talking about who's here and what they do. We have people who live in the city and the country. We have men and women. We have older and younger. We, we have people who are white-collar and blue-collar. We have people who are trained in, in ministry, and we have others who are brand-new believers. And they're all working side by side to accomplish God's work. And that's what we see in this chapter. If you go through and you read this chapter, you'll see there are 22 times, 22 times that you'll read a phrase that says, next to him, next to them, beside him, after them. Again, showing how it took everyone working together, coming alongside, side by side, to accomplish the work that needed to be done. And when we get to chapter 6, we're going to see that in 52 days, 52 days, two and a half miles of wall, 10 city gates are rebuilt. And I want you to remember that we saw in previous sermons that the walls have been in ruins for 142 years. 50,000 Jews returning under Zerubbabel and Ezra had not been able to rebuild the walls. And yet in 52 days... The walls are rebuilt because side by side, everybody pitched in. Everybody went to work. And the same thing happens when it comes to doing God's work in our day. As you read Romans chapter 12, it tells us in Romans 12, 4 through 8, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members uh, do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. If your gift is service, then serve with joy. If you're a teacher, are you helping others to grow and develop? If your gift is encouragement, brighten somebody's day. 
If God has provided for you in a way that you can share what he's blessed you with, share it with his work and with others. Be generous. If God has called you to lead, then lead diligently. If your gift is mercy, then serve with gladness and kindness. When we all work together using the gifts God has given us, we can do amazing things for God and the work that he calls us to do, just as we see here in Nehemiah chapter 3. Let me close with this illustration of uh, a group of soldiers who were serving at the end of World War II. They were stationed in a small village in Europe that had been decimated by the war, and as they were there, they decided to try to help the villagers rebuild their town. And, and they started in the, in the town square. There was a church there that had taken a direct hit from a, a bomb, and, and the, the, the church was just in ruins. And they went in, and as they started to clear away the rubble and try to bring things down to where the foundations were and they could begin to build on to what was remaining of the walls, they, they found a marble statue of Jesus that had been uh, blown up in, in you know, the midst of all the destruction. And as they were sorting through, pulling all the pieces out, they were able to, to find most of the parts of the statue. It, it was largely intact as they cemented it back together, and they stood it back up in the church where it had once stood. Now, as I said, they were able to find most of the statue, but the, the hands were missing. They had been obliterated. And so one of the soldiers, as he was looking at this statue, he was inspired by the handless Savior, and he put a sign around uh, this statue. And he said, the sign said, Jesus has no hands but yours. He has no hands but yours. Jesus Christ is coming back to the earth one day. But until he returns, he's called us to be his hands and his feet and his mouthpiece. He's called us to the places where he's put us at school, at work, where we live, to be those who are filling in the gaps in the wall to serve and to represent him. So ask yourself, are you willing to be his hands, to be his mouthpiece, to be his feet, to go where he calls you to serve others? Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we know that the world in which we live is broken. It's been decimated by sin. The walls of society are in ruins. There's darkness all around. We thank you, Lord God, that you, Father, sent your son Jesus to be the solution to the problem of sin in the world. We thank you, Jesus, that you willingly came to give your life on the cross to pay that penalty of death that we owe for our sins and to prove you were indeed who you said you were, God, that you rose from the dead, showing you had conquered sin and death. We thank you, Jesus, that as you left the earth, you sent the Holy Spirit. You gave us the helper, the paraclete, to fill us, to empower us. So, God, we know that you've given us what we need to stand in the gap. Would you help us to be those who are willing to begin to work where you have us? Would we be those who would shine the light in the darkness and share the good news of the gospel in the places that you have us? Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for all you've done to save us. And now as your servants, would we be those who would be faithful to stand in the gap, to work on the walls, to spread the good news of the gospel where you have us. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.